I'd like you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. That's where we're going to start off. And if you have, uh, if you have a bulletin, pull out your notes. It should look something like this. We'll be kind of working our way through that. <clears throat> For those of you who may be new, we want to welcome you. And um, just to kind of catch you up a little bit of where we've been so far and, and where we're working through, um, we're in the middle of a series that we're just calling Demanding. And really what it is, is it's taking a look at what does Jesus um, demand of his followers? What is the normal Christian life? And what we're, what we're doing really in some ways is we're touching on just the very tip of the iceberg of all the things that we could kind of cover. But this is the normal Christian life. This is what it means to follow Christ. And we're looking at these things. The word disciple is thrown around a whole bunch. And especially if you're a pastor... Uh, you know, everyone's always talking about discipleship, and it's part of the Great Commission. We're to make disciples, so it's a great thing to think about. Um, but it's a great question to ask, what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does a disciple look like? And I think some, sometimes people throw these kinds of thoughts out. Well, it's a, it's a code of conduct. Or maybe add to that, it's a system of beliefs. And in some ways, we have a, a certain perception of a disciple because we're from America. We have a certain thought process, and this is how we think through things. We like to quantify and organize and categorize and systemize and all of that. And um, it's always fascinating to talk through church planting with people who've done it in cultures outside of our own. Because then we're just left with the truth. We're like, okay, well, what does God's Word really say? And what is just kind of an add-on for American Christianity that this is how we do it? One of the things, I think, one of the struggles that, that, that we have, maybe because we have the luxury to, to do this, but we certainly demand this in other areas, and that is this. We want to see it in action. We want to see that it works. We want to be sold on the idea that, yes, this, this is the idea and this works, and then we'll put our belief in it. Then we'll put our trust in it. Think about a product you might buy. We're, we're just trained this way, right? Is that, is that you're, you're selling me on it. I want to see all the different factoids on it, and I want to do some research on it. And if it's a, you know, something, I want to test it out. And Jesus had kind of an inverted... I mean, most things, when you start learning what Christ is really about, we're going to talk about joy this morning. It's inverted. It always seems kind of upside down. Jesus had this, this different idea about discipleship. He essentially said this, you will not know that this is true until you live it, until you walk in it. He, he unashamedly and unequivocally, and didn't feel like he had to explain himself, he said this, trust me. Remember what he said to his disciples? Two words. Kind of sums up discipleship. Follow me. It wasn't a big explanation of all the reasons he should wasn't a business card saying, here, you can call my references. He just, he just pretty boldly and bluntly threw it out there. Trust me. Follow me. Think about some of the things that we know that he taught and think about how this works. Tell me some of the things that he taught about generosity. What does the Bible teach about generosity? Just kind of call it out to me. Do it with a happy heart. Okay, what else? Do it abundantly. What else? Do it secretly. What? It's an indicator of your heart. Absolutely. Jesus set the standard on being generous, right? All these different things on, on generosity. I mean, think about the upside down nature of this. To give it all away is to receive. That doesn't make any sense. 
I mean, to me, it makes sense to kind of to kind of hang on to it, though. But you won't know this. It's more blessed to what? Give than receive. You can't know that until you really walk in it. You could, you could take this to a lot of different things. How about the whole area of purity? How about all the blessed are the meek, gentle, all, all the, you know, all the Beatitudes. You don't know a lot of those things, most of those things, many of those things, until you just walk in it. And you start to live it and you start to realize, man, this is totally true. Thomas at one point says this. He says, he says show us the way. He says, we don't know the way you're going. Show us the way. And what does Jesus answer him? He says, I am the way. It all funnels back through me. It all comes back through me. So as we're talking about what a normal Christian life is, we're going to be covering all these different topics. And frankly, we could take the entire year and go through and say, this is what's demanded of a, of a Christian. This is the normal Christian life. We're not going to take an entire year on it. But what I want to do is not, is not make it so confusing that you go all these different things. Well, I know we're supposed to be born again and we're supposed to believe. And last week we talked about abiding. And now we're talking about joy. And I just get so confusing. It's all about Jesus. It all comes back to you and funnels through Him. Follow Him. Now, we've been looking so far at basically internal demands, and we've done that on purpose. Because I think sometimes what happens is, what does it mean to be a Christian? We start looking at the externals. Well, it means following these rituals and these rules and dressing a certain way and going a certain path and having a Bible reading program and whatever else it might be. Those are all external things. We started with the internal. Here's the deal with internal demands, though. They're hard to measure uh, whether you're growing or not sometimes, aren't they? Church attendance, super easy to measure. Uh, 50, 51 weeks this year. Pretty good, pretty good job. You still get the gold star. I mean, you can just measure that. And there's something in us, again, especially as Americans, we like that. We like to check it off and quantify. Internally, it's really difficult to know, did you abide this week? I mean, don't raise your hand, but how many of you grew in your abiding this last week? Especially based on opening God's Word and looking at the fact that we're to abide, remain, stay in Christ this week. Did you do it? So they're hard, they're hard to, to measure. The other thing with internal demands is they're super easy to fake or hide. Isn't it pretty decently easy to create a vocabulary that says you abided this last week? We're talking about joy this week. It's pretty easy to go, hallelujah, brother, on a Sunday morning. And people are like, wow, that's just weird, you know? And all the while, you know, your kids are looking up at you going, wow, that's a weird persona that you put on on Sunday morning. That's just wacky. I mean, it's easy to fake it because, because we, don't, we don't live with each other all the time. And so these internal demands can be really, really easy to fake. Even fake yourself out. Before we move on to community ideas and how we're to treat one another, how does God demand that we treat and live in community? We're going to talk about joy. Now, this whole idea of joy is obviously really elusive and confusing to a lot of people. You think about poor people, and poor people think this. And poor is a really relative term, isn't it? There's people in this room that feel poor. And then anyone who went to Mexico, John was there, and Les was there, and, and Jonathan was there. There was a bunch of people. They'd say, no, you're not really poor. And then there's poor on all kinds of different levels, relationally poor and, you know, materially poor and all that. But let's just say you feel poor this morning. You know what poor people feel like? They, they, they basically say this. If only I had more money, more things, more opportunity, more upward mobility, I'd be happy. It'd be easier to be joyful in that circumstance. You know what rich people think about? They think this. If I didn't have so many weighty decisions 
if I didn't have so much stuff to manage, if I could just have a simpler life, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be joyful. And by the way, let's all go to Haiti next week. We're all rich in, in, this, in this room, right? So the rich and the poor both look at it, and it's this elusive thing, this, this joy, this happiness, and, and there's, this, there's, this, there's this elusiveness to it. Here's what the culture says about joy in some ways. I'm just, I'm just thinking about a magazine rack, okay? Just, just checking out at the grocery store, you know, just magazine covers. There's a lot of different things that the, that the culture kind of points to in, in terms of saying, you know, joy. I mean, here's just some of the things. Great sex. Shiny trucks with 35-inch tires. Walking a white sand beach, you know, with your, with your boyfriend, girlfriend, hubby, wife, whatever. We look at that, we say, well, that's kind of like joy. And if you're sitting there and you're stressed out, you know, treadmill life, you're looking back going, yeah, that looks pretty good right now. And if I could just get to that resort, that, that, would, be, that would be joy. But let me just take one of those. Let's take, let's take lots of sex. That's something that, as a, especially as a college student, you know, you just start getting pressured in different ways. And one of the messages sent to me, I don't, I don't think everyone ever preached this to me, but they said, you know, lots of sex is going to bring you happiness and joy. Just based on that logic, who should the happiest people in our culture be? Prostitutes. Right? So, I mean, it didn't take long for me to start figuring this out. I'm like, okay, lots of sex with lots of different people. Should be the prostitutes are the happiest people. And it wasn't hard to make that connection. I go, I don't think that's really true. I don't even know any prostitutes, but I didn't think that was the, the path to joy and lasting happiness. Again, it's elusive, isn't it? I put on your paper and you can, you can, you can uh, take this little quiz for yourself at home. But this little statement, joy is tied to a location, circumstances, people, time, or place. Yes or no? Let me say this. What if I said that there were... There were people singing in the streets for joy. And this was a headline from, uh, from about a week ago. I think it was on Monday or something. And, uh, and some of you already, I want to bring you back. Because all of, I know Jeff right here is already fast-forwarding. He's like, did I set TiVo to record at 12? Okay, it's USA that's going to trounce Canada in a few minutes. We're, we're good. But, but I want to bring you back. So don't think about that game. That's coming in a little bit. Okay, I know Dwayne's thinking it too. I'm thinking it too. Okay, so let's bring it back to joy. Um, so that's one headline, right? Reporting from Vancouver on joy is one thing. How about reporting from, from, from Haiti? And here's another headline from the LA Times. That people are filling the streets and singing hymns in Haiti. Joy tied to a location. Joy tied to circumstances. Joy tied to people. Joy tied, tied to what your landscape looks like right now. One of these seems totally humanly normal and probable. One seems humanly improbable. That you would sing a hope-filled hymn in Haiti seems not only improbable, but highly unlikely and possibly even supernatural. Let me just say, as we're looking at Philippians 4 here in a second, that Paul wrote this more from Haiti than British Columbia, Canada. His setting was a cell, right? He's in prison. He's been bullied and beat up for what he believes in, unjustly prison, uh, in prison, and he's writing from a cell. So, so just so you know, this, this encouragement we're going to get to rejoice always is being written from Haiti more than Vancouver. Just think about that. Philippians 4, verse 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says this, I will say it again, rejoice. 
We're going to camp out on that little phrase for a little while here. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say it again. Rejoice. There's, there's not many times in my life that I've really thought about joy as, as these two things. One is as a command and one is as a privilege. I don't think about joy as a command very often. In fact, it actually seems a little bit odd. It's a little bit like sitting your kids down, and I do this jokingly with them once in a while. I sit them down and I say, listen, you will have fun today. Do you understand me? And they're giggling and laughing, you know. I'm like, I'm like no, 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 I'm serious. You better not break this rule. You better have fun and play. And they're like, okay, we'll do it, you know. And, and it, it seems odd to command joy and to, and to demand it. But that's exactly what it is. In fact, as you look at this, this demand, think about any other place in Scripture. I can't really think of any other place in Scripture where he says this. Do this. Let me say this again. Do this. And he's that emphatic about it. Now, here's the thing. If I say to you, do not steal. Most of you guys get that. And you say, yeah, that lines up with what I know a follower of Christ is supposed to be about. They're not supposed to steal stuff. That makes a lot of sense to me. But just as emphatically, the Bible says, says to to us as followers, rejoice always. Let me say it again because I want it to be emphasized and known and remembered. Rejoice. And it's demanded of us. How about a second one? The idea of it being a privilege. Now, my wife is the daughter of a former United pilot. And as the daughter of a former United pilot, while he was a United pilot, she could have gone uh, to the airport ticket counter and, and flown to Paris for lunch if she wanted to, for free. She could have just flown over there, enjoyed some croissants and coffee, even though she doesn't like coffee, and then flown back if she wanted to. And I remember when I first started dating her and I was you know, kind of roped into this family, I'm like, man, I would be all over that. I would just be flying places left and right. I'm like, Cairo, Egypt. This is before Wikipedia. You can't type it in and learn about it. Let's just fly there, you know? I've got a pair of shorts. I can last. I mean, I would just feel like I would take it up all the time. You know what? How many times did you go to Paris, babe? Zero. Um, and that used to frustrate me. I was like, how come you don't take it up more? I mean, it was just privilege that, that she never took advantage of. Now, um, think about this. Think about joy as a, as a, as a privilege. It's one of these weird demands of us that, that if we tap into this, we go, man, this is a, this is a blank check in a way. Like, like, like this is a way to live that I would long to live this way. And it's actually a privilege to get to be joyful. Why would I ever forfeit that? Why would I ever take that and never use it? Just kind of tuck it away and shove it under a bed. Well, this morning I want to pull it out. I want us to think about joy. Now, one of, some of you are already thinking as I'm talking here about joy. You're thinking, well, joy and happiness isn't the same thing, and you're right. In fact, we could take the word joy and just, and just let it be competing with all kinds of different words. Good times, and cheer, and happy, and gladness, and glee, right? And we can look at that and say, okay, well, there's different definitions. I remember learning early on that happiness depends more on circumstances and people, but joy is this deeper undercurrent thing. And that's absolutely right. In fact, I would say this, that to, to take Christ's joy that he says can be complete in you and to kind of sully that with thinking about a good time or, or, or just a, a really great weekend or a really super neato vacation 
is to just kind of bring it way down from, from where, where it, it should remain in terms of being lofty and exalted. C.S. Lewis has this great quote in, in a book that he wrote called The Weight of Glory. And it just shows that we tend to settle with, with regards to joy. Listen to what he says. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what I want to do this morning is take our, our maybe level of joy that we think about, even Christian joy, and, and I, I want to just let the Scriptures speak for themselves and hopefully challenge you with some new thoughts and encourage you to press on. Bebo Norman took what I think was really C.S. Lewis's quote. Um, I don't know that he was thinking about it, but it ties together. He takes it and puts it to song, and he says this, I want a crumb, but you are a feast. I want a song, but you are a symphony. I want a star, but you are a galaxy. And I have resolved that I'm much better off in what you have for me. And in that song, I just go, that's me, Lord. I, I ask for so little sometimes. In fact, all I'm longing for sometimes is just a good weekend to kind of make up for the rough week I've had. Would you please just, just enlarge my, my, my view of you today and how completely overwhelming you are? We're going to spend the rest of the morning doing this. We're going to take a look at why, why is joy demanded from us? Why is it commanded from us? And then secondly, why is it demanding? How is joy demanding in our lives. Why is it so difficult sometimes to be joyful? So in looking at, at, at why it's demanded, let me just say this. The first fill-in, if you want to put this in, number one is this. That it shows off God as supremely good and trustworthy. Shows off God as supremely good and trustworthy. To put it kind of in churchy terms, it glorifies Him. Glorify means to show off. Luke 14.33, Jesus says this, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And that seems like a pretty tall order. But for the disciple who's chosen to follow Jesus, it's not that it was such a, a, a discipline or an inner sacrifice. They're like, I'm just going to give it all and go follow Jesus. You know what it is? It's just smart. It's the natural, normal thing to do. Let me explain. In probably one of the shortest uh, parables, turn to, turn to Matthew really quick. You can leave your finger in Philippians if you don't know how to find it again. But if not, flip over to Matthew. And in Matthew 13, uh, verse 44, you're going to see just a really short little parable. In fact, it's kind of like a one-verse parable, a little story that Jesus told. <coughs> it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, catch this, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Some of you in this room know that what we're talking about here isn't religious exercise, isn't kind of a good moral base to kind of boost us forward in our lives and succeed in America. 
You, you know what I'm talking about. When, when I read this passage that Jesus said, you're like, man, I have found that treasure. And so, and so to go and sell everything you have for this treasure, and this guy almost seemed to stumble upon it. I love this. Because some of you were out looking for the truth, but many of us, we were bebopping along through life, and we stumbled upon the treasure of the gospel. That our sins had been forgiven. That we've been given eternal life that starts right now. And we're just like, man, what else matters? And so to go and sell everything you had to go buy this field that has this treasure in it isn't some big sacrifice. It's just smart, right? It's just the, the, the better investment. You look at that and go, this is a no-brainer. You know, trade in a nickel for a blank check from Bill Gates. It's, it's pretty simple. I'm not just being so self-sacrificing by giving this up. Now think about this. When you joyfully endure trials, when you joyfully endure recessions, when you walk through bad news and health issues and circumstances that are caving in around you and you rejoice, doesn't that just preach well to your neighbors about what's important? Doesn't that just preach well to your family that goes, why are you so ludicrous by going to church all the time? Haven't you got through your little religious phase yet? And it starts to preach well that says, man, there's a joy that's way deeper than a clean bill of health. Padded bank account. Secure job that seems like it's going to be there for a while. Relational security. It just preaches well, shows God off, gives praise when His followers are joyful no matter what. And a little side note here. What if we reserved our greatest celebrations and our greatest joy and our greatest shouts of happiness for God? And not for USA Hockey. A bunch of kids playing with a hockey puck this afternoon. Being at the game and just going... And just cheering your head off for a first down. And never getting that fired up about the Lord. Just something to think about. Number two. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but this was a new thought to me. And as I thought more about it, it really rang true. Your safety and well-being depend on your joy. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. If you want to flip back over there, you can. If not, write it down. Philippians 3, 1 says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Now, here's what the context of that verse is talking about. He's about to go on and talk about kind of like false teachers and teachings that, that put any boast or any hope in anything but the finished work of Christ. So don't, don't put it on your flesh. Don't put, and, and in their day, it's a little bit hard to translate it because no one's mutilating flesh like they do back then. And you're thinking, what is it talking about? But, but here's what it is in our Christian modern-day context. Don't put it in the number of Bible studies. Don't put it in the fact that your kids are in, you know, you know they're Awana, Gold Star Commanders. Uh, don't put it in the fact of how many verses you've memorized, your Bible reading program, how many years you've been doing this, that, or the other thing. Don't boast or place your hope or joy in any of that. In fact, your safety and well-being depend that you place your joy in the right place. Remember Philippians 4.4? 4, 4? Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. 
So it matters immensely where you put it. Misplaced joy leads to death. It's the path that leads to death because it burns you. And some people think that the joy is in the church. Some people think the joy is in God's Word. God's Word is just, it's going to last forever. But you know what? It's reflective of, of a God, a being that's putting it forth. So if you put all your joy in this church and there's a massive church split, where's your joy left? Crumbled, broken down, and you were, it was always misplaced. It was always in something it shouldn't have been in the first place. Our safety depends on properly placed joy. I would say keep away from, from little joys. There's all kinds of little joys, and that's what C.S. Lewis was getting at. There's all kinds of things that, that bring about little temporary happiness, but we should have learned this as kids. It's the Christmas syndrome. You know, you open that present that you've asked for and longed for and wished for and dreamt for for weeks, and within like a few minutes, you're just like, eh, it's okay. But it's not what I really wanted. And then what's on to the next thing? People do that in relationships. People do that in careers. People do that in living space. On and on and on we go. And what it is, it's searching for joy. And all the while, there's kind of this secret laying right in front of us. The reason I think this isn't a side issue, but one of great importance, A, you can tell from the tone of it, this, this, re, this repeated theme of saying rejoice, I'll say it again, rejoice. Is that, is that people can, can be deceived by this. And if I were up here and I'm tickling your ears and I'm kind of boosting you up, and every time you leave these doors, you're like, I just feel better about myself. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be a really bad thing. If you don't ever walk out these doors and you're like, I don't really like Dave right now. That, that's a good thing because it probably means I'm just preaching the Bible. I don't want you to hate my guts every week, okay? I'm not saying that. But I want you to walk away and go, yeah, that guy's off his rocker. He's not know what he's talking about. I'm going to look at my Bible and show him. Now, I'm not saying I'm infallible. You might come back to me and say, you were off your rocker a little bit. But I hope you read God's Word that way too. I hope you don't always just feel cheery, chipper, and good. So it means you're reading it with blinders on. It means you're always thinking he's talking about the other guy. Oh, God's wrath is reserved for those heathens. Those other people. And, and, and what I find in the Scripture is as you, as you read, I mean, read the prophet Isaiah, there is real wrath coming against real sin. And don't think it's preaching for those who don't sit in a pew. Look in the mirror. So, that sounds really joyful. That fits into the joy theme, doesn't it? Here's the other thing about safety and well-being depending on your joy. Think about this for a minute. Those of you who have kids, those of you who hope to have kids one day, you want them joyful. Right? What if you had a nine-year-old and they're just like this anxious little ball of worry. And all they do is they just go around. They're just, the weight of their world is on their shoulders. And they're just like, how are you doing? How can I be doing anything but terrible? You're like, what? That's exactly the kid I wanted. I mean, no one really prays for that kind of kid who's just worried all the time and anxious and stressed out and filled with grief. Why? Because here's why. Despair is a sign of brokenness, isn't it? Anxiety and worry and fear, those are all things we have tons of medication for to, to steer you away from that. To get you figuring out that, let's just at least mask it with some medicine or something, but, but those are bad things we need to fix. Go look for medications on how to cure joy. 
How to cure deep, lasting peace. How to cure someone who's worry-free. There aren't any. Because that's the healthy place. That's where people are, are trying to get. And so just think about this. Walking through life, um, and I, I think we're a pretty joyful church. I've been around some church people that are like this all the time. My brother. And every time we need to gather, it just has to be really, really solemn. And serious. And pretty soon you're like, man, I just want to go jump off a cliff like that. I, I mean, it reflects bad. If you guys saw my kids trouncing in here every week and they're just like, and you said, hey, how's it going? They're like, fine. And they just looked down and they were just solemn and sad. You would be like, something weird is going on with Dave and Becky. That just points weird things to the parents, doesn't it? It's a natural, normal, good thing to be joyful and to be walking in that. And, and as Christians, we ought to be that in spades. Thirdly, your imitation of Christ is incomplete without joy. Don't turn there, just write this down. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy. Catch this, given by the Holy Spirit. We'll touch on that more in a second. And so you became a model to all the believers. We know from Ephesians 5 that we're, as, as beloved or dearly loved kids, we're to follow God's example. We're to just imitate Dad in all things. That's why this message really could boil down really simply to Jesus just saying, follow me. Stay in the Gospels. Stay in, in how He responds to people. Stay in how He reacts in trial and challenge and temptation and what He does with His time. You're doing pretty good right there. That's just a bulk of what it means to be a disciple. So imitate God, you're doing good. And to imitate God without joy is, is to be incomplete in our, in our imitation. And so that says this to me. It's not a temperament thing. Some of you could look up here and say, I, I've been around Dave long enough to know, in general, he's more of a glasses half full kind of a guy. And I am. That's the way God's wired me. But you know what? It's not reserved for glasses half full type people. This is a command for every temperament in this room. And if, and if you've checked yourself off already earlier in the message going, much of this doesn't apply because I'm just not wired that way, you don't get out of it. We're to rejoice in the Lord. Now, my rejoicing will look different than a buddy of mine named Avery Stafford. Some of you have, have rubbed shoulders with Avery. He's a very demonstrative worship leader friend of mine. And Avery, he's just fun to be around. And there's things I look at. I, used to, I, was, I worked with him for a while. I said, man, I wish I could... I wish I could pull off some of the things that, 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 that you pull off. It would be weird for, for me to do that because it's just not in my nature. But you're, the way you express joy sometimes is how I feel it. Like That's how I imagine it in my mind. And then I'm like, I love you, Lord. And I'm just a little bit more reserved. And there's a part of me just goes, oh, I wish I could be like that. So his expression of joy is different than mine. Mine's different than yours. And there's some of you I know that you're just like this. You're just like, Sing along, just barely bobbing your head. And the, the same level expressed in different personality, they'd be just jumping out of their chair <laughs> screaming. That's temperament. But this demand, this command that we be joyful, is true for every single person in this room. Let me just show you joy in the Trinity really quick. We're going to look a little bit later more at this, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is. Jesus, although He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he was a deeply joyful person. In fact, on the night before he's betrayed, he's talking to his disciples, and several times he's talking about his joy that he wants to make complete in his disciples. Deep joy. 
talking about joy in, in, again, kind of the most inverted of ways. And just in the Father, we see it as part of His nature and character. Very briefly, we'll run through what, is, what does God rejoice about? We're to imitate God, and so to learn what it means to be um, joyful in the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Let's look to God. What does God rejoice about? I just put a couple of these down. There's, there's more you can explore in your community group this week. Every single sinner who repents causes rejoicing in heaven. So you know what? When, someone, when, when, when someone's eyes are, are open to the truth of the gospel, you ought to have an absolute celebration in your home about it. If you come home from work one day and you're like, guys, you just won't believe this. I, I love dinner time because dinner time is the time of like sitting down and just sharing about what's going on. And I've just so many times, I'm like, guys, you wouldn't believe what's going on today. I've, I just have to tell you this. And if you ever sit down at that conversation and you're talking about someone who's come to know Christ, or like a few weeks ago we had three in the baptismal just proclaiming the change that God did in their life, you know what you ought to do? You ought to have a huge party for that. You ought to just celebrate that. Heaven does. God does. God rejoices over that. It's no small matter for one sinner to turn from his fleshly ways and start pursuing God. That's a miracle. It's like a new birth. In the same way we would celebrate a physical new birth, we ought to celebrate every single spiritual birth as deeply impressive. Secondly, being united in heaven. Hebrews 12.12 says this, that Jesus, for for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Part of what he was looking forward to was being united with his Father in heaven. That's something we can mimic on this earth. We're going through trials. In fact, we're told to take up our cross and follow in his footsteps. What are his footsteps? They killed him for what he said and believed and stood for. So as we're following, we ought to, for the joy set before us, which is being united in heaven with our Father, patiently endure the trials going on right now. Thirdly, his people and doing good to them. I just put Isaiah 65, Jeremiah 32, tons of places that, that you could bring this. But it brings joy to the Father to bless his people. Question for you, what, what brings you joy? Don't answer it right now, but just think on that. What really brings you joy? I mean, here's, here's a great little way to figure out what that is. What is it that you, you just, when you see your friends and family, you have to tell them about? How often does it include spiritual matters? How often does it include something that, that God's rejoicing about? I think too often I'm finding myself rejoicing. I, I, I was thrilled about the sunshine today. It was just a glorious morning. I saw two, at least two, really cute little tiny girls in like Easter dresses. I mean, they're just, it was just like put a smile on my face. Now, that's something to be joyful about. But if all we ever do is kind of like under the sun joy, things that anyone can be joyful about, I think we're missing out. We're definitely not imitating God in that. Paul's joy and glory, it was people. It was the church that he poured his life's blood into building up. Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Here it is. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Some of you have tasted of this because you've invested your life into other people. And there's nothing like mentoring someone, meeting with someone, walking through life with someone. We're going to get there in a, in a few weeks. Some of you have so much to offer other people. Other people who aren't yet Christians. Brand new people who are brand new Christians that don't know diddly squat about where to go with that. 
And they need you to come along and walk alongside them and put your arm around them and just meet with them. Some of you have tasted of the joy of when that person grows up. And just like your kids, you're not jealous of your kids' joy and glory when you've poured into them. And all these Olympians are getting all this gold medal, TV time glory. They always give a little shot or two to mom or dad. Mom's, you know, crying and dad's sitting there, whatever. But you know what? They're, they're thrilled that their kid's on the ice and not them. They're not going secretly, yeah, I want that glory. I want that. I mean, their joy. Is it? No, no, no. I poured into that. That's a, and spiritually, it's the same way. I think about some of the people that have been mentors in my life. And I think about who was it that poured into them that they probably, like a, like a rocket booster, kind of outshone that person. But I, I've, have you ever thanked God for the people who poured into the people who poured into you? It's called spiritual lineage. And you just think back. You go, and someone did a great job here. God, obviously it's you, but you use people. And I praise God for that. I thank God for those people. John's joy. Third John, verse 4 says this. Catch this. I have no greater joy. Here it is. Pinnacle of joy for, for John, one of the disciples. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Some of you parents ought to grab that and put that physically into your family. Rejoice over straight A's, that's great. Rejoice over a goal, you know, goal in soccer or a home run or whatever, that's great. But reserve your highest praise and your highest joy and the deepest like look on your face of utter proud moment for when they say, man, I just I can't explain it, but I really have a hunger to read God's Word this morning. Mommy, Daddy, would you please explain to me? I want to make sure that I'm in Christ. I keep hearing about being in Christ. I want to know what it means to invite Jesus into my life. That ought to be a, a different level of joy than all these other things. Your greatest joy ought to be that your children are walking the truth. Either spiritual children or earthly children. There's an ancient hymn book right in the middle of your Bible called the Psalms. And it teaches us about joy and rejoicing and happy. Those are all words that tie into that. But just listen to a couple of these. Psalm 32.11 Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. 33.1 Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. That's what's fitting on a righteous person. Uh, 64.10 Let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in Him. Let all the upright in heart praise Him. 68.3 But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Now I went back and did an edit about Thursday and took off about seven more that I was going to read this morning. There are a ton in there. And so learn from your older brothers and sisters in the faith. And if you don't have it, say, Lord, I, I, I want to choose to rejoice, but I don't feel it. Would you just bring that to me? I want to walk in this, believing and knowing it's true. I know you'll, 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 you'll bring up the other parts of it. Instead of holding back like we tend to do and seeing if it works before we go forward. The whole book of Philippians, I'm not even going to take time to walk, walk through these. I've got a bunch of great stuff written down, but you'll never hear it. But Philippians is... <laughs> I say my best stuff for not putting it out so no one can really judge it. Um, Philippians is a little bit like joy for dummies. It's like if you want to know about joy and you want to go one book in the Bible, go to four chapters in, in Philippians. And in that one book, we, we're looking at one verse, but in that one book, you're just going to see different things of joy. Just circle the word joy in it. Say, what, what was Paul teaching about joy? That's all the book of Philippians. Let's move on to this. 
How is it demanding? How is joy difficult? Another way to ask it would be this. Okay, soak in the picture really quick here. Okay, there we go. Good. We make our plans and then life comes at us, right? With cell phones falling in places they shouldn't and our plans just being thwarted. That's life. That's how it goes. How is joy demanding? Another way to ask it is, is what are the things that steal it? Here's, here's one of the reasons it's demanding to be joyful. Always. Isn't that just... I mean, the scope of that command is really challenging. Be joyful. I like that. I can, I can live with that. I'm like, yeah, when I'm in Vancouver, winning gold, you know, even at bronze, I'll celebrate that. When life's pretty good, I'll be... But be joyful always? I mean, it's a little bit like Sermon on the Mount stuff, where it's like, I could get by with not murdering someone. I mean, that was okay. I could do that. But don't even be angry at someone. Don't even think murderous thoughts in my heart. Now you're going a little too far. That's just too hard. That's the whole point. God's lifting this out of our ability to, to, to manufacture and do this on our own to a supernatural ability. So the only way you'll be joyful always is if it's a fruit growing out of the fruit of the Spirit. God's presence in you, right? So what I don't want you to do is walk out of here and be like, all right, I'm supposed to be more joyful. I'm going to try to be more joyful. That's going to frustrate you and make you less joyful. And all of your spouses will email me and say, quit talking about it. It's getting really frustrating for this person. So don't hear that. What, what, what I want you to hear is this. Pursue Jesus. Pursue the things God's pursuing. And you'll start to look around and you'll start to see joy in your life. It'll be like a fruit. You'll just go, wow, there it is. So it's impossible to rejoice without His grace, His ongoing grace, breeding this in our lives. But here's one of the ways that we find it a struggle to be joyful is that we're just prone to forget there's all kinds of things I could throw out here, but let me throw out a few great quotes. In this life, you will have trouble. Here's another one. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute those who follow. And through much tribulation and suffering, you will be saved. Those are just a highlight of some of the joyful passages found in the Scriptures. Jesus said these things, and we're prone to forget that. We're, we're prone to think that I've accepted Christ now and things should, should be straight for me here on earth. And they're just not. And so we, we tend to be short-sighted in our, in our thinking. Flip open to the, to the back of your Bibles in 1 Peter. And I think we'll end here with 1 Peter. I'm not positive. Don't hold me to it. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to look at verses 6 to 9. 6 to 9 says this. <clears throat> in this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There it is, showing off God. Verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now here's what I want to backtrack to that. So you catch all that kind of future glory and future joy and how that future glory and joy actually affects our current condition? It affects what's going on right now. We say, okay, there's a, there's a reason to all of this. 
I'm going to just believe God and take Him at His word that He really is working in these, in these situations. Therefore, I can be uh, joyful in all situations. Verse 6 says this, In this you greatly rejoice. You know what you do from, from that point? If, you're, if someone starts you in verse 6, you say, In what? I mean, it's, it's carrying on a thought. So, so glance up at, at verse 1. Here it is. Here's how he starts. Here's the first three verses that say, In this, in these first three verses, you greatly rejoice. And all these other things come with it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, knew his identity. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, catch this, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this, you greatly rejoice. And then on it goes on with with inexpressible joy. And you're walking around like a psycho to people because they go, I don't know what's firing this guy up. I mean, he just lost his job. He, you know, on and on the list goes, and yet there's this inexpressible joy going on. That's what we're to rejoice in. In the easy times, you know what? It's easy to, to mess up this way with joy. It's easy to find joy in the gift and not in the, in the, in the giver of the gift, isn't it? When, you're, when your health is good, it's easy to be joyful, but maybe you're joyful in your health and not in the God who produces the health. So in easy times, being joyful can actually be really, really challenging. In hard times, you focus on problems. You trust in yourself to solve the problems. You think joy comes with change. And it leads to self-pity, pride, despair, all kinds of horrible things. We get short-sighted either with good times or bad times with our joy. And I'm guilty of it too. It's called little joys. And the Bible constantly pulls us away and says, don't be seduced, don't be duped by little joys. Jesus used in, in John 16, just write that down, that when a woman is giving birth, it says this, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Amen, ladies? Amen, ladies? Those are the ones who've had kids. That second amen. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Monday night, we're at dinner, and I looked at my wife. I had read this passage, and I asked her, I said, Babe, how much did it hurt when you had current? And she said, it hurt a lot. I said, how much? And she expanded on that a little bit. And I said, the, the, the second that you saw current, was it worth it? Moms, what are the answer? A thousand times so, yes. And if you have more than one kid, what does the next kid say? What about me? You know, they want to make sure. We're like, not, not so much on you. No, I'm just kidding. No, we went around. We went on to every one of them. We went around to every one of them. And here's the picture Jesus is saying. Is he's saying, you're, you're, you're in labor and delivery at Good Sam right now. That's what this is. That's, that's what this picture is. Don't forget that you, you weren't made for sitting in a hospital bed. As cool as the bed is, that it kind of raises and lowers and all that, as cool as it is that people come and bring you food, you just push a button and someone's at your bedside waiting on you, none of you like being there. 
Because you understand, it's, it's for a season. And so it's this, it's this joyful reward that's, that's coming. I want you to look at your bulletin for a minute. And this picture is, is, is really kind of, uh, it's really kind of a, a, a metaphor for what we're talking about. There's this long shadow that's been cost, cast by the fall. And so sin and death and pain enter the world. And, and there's this bright, warm sun that's enveloping the world. It's a reality no matter what, whether we see it or not, whether we feel like it or not. And this long shadow that's been, that's been cast by the fall, uh, one day is going to disappear. One day we're going to step out of that shadow and into the glorious sunshine and there won't be shadows anymore. We won't have to live in that anymore. And when you pull way back from the picture, you can see that shadow is just a tiny little part of it. But if the span of your life is 80 years, let's just be generous. If the span of your life is 80 years and you go, man, it's always dark here. The Bible keeps pointing us to the baby that's going to be born, so to speak. This, this inexpressible joy where one day you'll, it'll all make sense. It'll all be worth it. You won't get excited about little ice chips you know, while you're having a baby. I get all the ice chips I could ever want. That's a little joy. Don't settle for ice chips. There's something way, way better over here. Press on. Hold on. <coughs> ben talked about this last week, but lastly is this. It requires daily abiding. The reason joy is so hard is every day. Ben said it well. I say this often. In fact, I said it at his wedding. That, that you can decide to get married, but you can choose, you must choose every single day that you want to remain married. You know what the word remain is talking about? Abiding. And so walking in this relationship with Christ is a daily thing. And these two tie together. John 15, 11, Jesus is talking. He says, my, so, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Joy has to do with abiding. A lot of times, a, a stealer of joy, read Psalm 32 sometime. David is in anguish over his sin. Sin's blocking it. He's not abiding with the Lord. He's not in right relationship with the Lord. And if that's our deepest foundational only point and source of joy, and that's being blocked, you won't be joyful. Don't go out of here and try to make yourself joyful. It won't happen. So abiding and joy really go together. Band, I want you to come on up. 2 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Paul's kind of bragging on a church here. And here's what he says. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given to the Macedonian church. Out of the most severe trial, remember circumstance, Haiti, out of their most severe trial... Their overflowing joy and, ex and their extreme poverty. Two things you don't often think about logically, right? Some of you have been to poor parts of the world, though, where you see this linked together. Extreme poverty, inexpressible joy. Sometimes I come back to America after a trip and I go, God, save me from all this distraction. Save me from ice chips. They don't satisfy this is not what we were made for. Yeah, it's a neat bed. Who cares? That's not what we're made for. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Paul's talking about financial blessing here. They, they, they so long to give out of joy, a joyful heart, as Caitlin brought up. 
They so long to give because of this joy in their hearts. And that's a picture of a, of a church that I want to be. You know what I love? I'll brag on you for a second. And when I brag on this church, I'm bragging on the Lord and His grace. So don't any of you get a big head. You know what we got a few weeks back? I mean, mid-January was an email saying, we've got land paid for. We've got babies that need a home in border town, Rosarito, Mexico. Is there any way you could send some, some money or, I don't know, workers to help complete this thing? And Wednesday of this last week, our crew got back. The answer was yes. And I hadn't, I hadn't even heard all those stories. John, I, I knew half those stories. But God wanted these six or seven guys on this trip. And Trish, sorry, Trisha, we're not forgetting you. And Peyton. God wanted that trip to go on. And so, boom, we just responded joyfully. It was so exciting to see that. This is your memory verse for this week. And then I'll stop and we'll sing a little bit and be dismissed. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 if you, met, if you memorize just 16, you're doing, you're doing really good. Probably one of the easiest ones you'll ever memorize. Here it is. Be joyful always. That's it. Be joyful always. Now, because we're an overachieving church, I added two more verses on. Here we go. Be joyful always. Verse 17. Pray continually. Verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Catch this last part. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I don't know what God's will for my life is. Baloney. Read the Bible. That's not the total encompassing of it, but what if you memorize those things and what if you live that out? What if this week you were joyful always? What if you prayed continually and gave thanks in everything and you'd be on the right path? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. God, you've commanded us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. God, I pray that in our weeping with brothers and sisters this week in community over coffee, over email and Facebook and texting, I pray, God, that we wouldn't sink down into their depression and try to identify so much that we never lift their eyes to you. And God, would you rescue us too from just being superficial and in throwing out hallelujah bombs to people and just say, well, it's God's will. He's working on you. And just give a glib answer that doesn't penetrate the heart. God, you wept when you heard that your friend Lazarus had died. She knew the glory that was coming. Help us to do the same, God. Help us to weep and then walk with people and allow people to walk with us through that valley, through that shadow, and point to the glorious realities beyond. I thank you, God, for each and every person in this room. You know why you brought them here this morning. You know where they fit in the big picture of what you're doing. God, we trust you this morning. And we want to be a joyful people, a joyful family around your table, celebrating and showing you off, no matter what's going on in our current circumstances. We love you. Amen.